Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. If 18-year-old Sam was here now, today's episode would be a real pinch-me moment. Back in the mid-80s, I was a student in Birmingham when I first stumbled upon the dark green spine that was the hallmark of a newish publisher called Virago. It started with one book in particular, The Edible Woman, by Margaret Atwood. Reading that book changed my life, as I don't doubt many Virago books have done for many, many people over the years. Virago launched 50 years ago this month, and for much of that time, my guest, Lenny Goodings, was at the heart of things. Margaret Atwood had this lovely line which she said, I don't think of it as age, I think of it as a different stage. Mm. <laughs> and I thought, well, I really like that a lot, actually. And I slightly feel the same. I mean, I think it's very difficult to you know, say how old you actually feel. Lenny joined Virago in 1978 as part-time office slave, rose to publisher and is now chair. Lenny has published a host of influential writers, including Atwood, Angela Carter, Sarah Waters, Maya Angelou and many more. She has also, latterly, become a much-needed advocate for the rights of older women in the workplace. I met Lenny at home in North London to talk about 50 years of feminism and publishing books by and for women, the moment she realised her life didn't have to be defined by who she married, and where she got her drive to make a difference. We also discussed the older women who've shaped her, the importance of bringing your A-game, and why ageism is the next front line. Thank you for coming on the shift, and thank you for letting me in your lovely house. Yes, you're very welcome. I do, do you know what, it's such a treat because... When I started doing the podcast, I, I always used to go to people's houses mm. just because, yeah. because it was nice and that was... And then lockdown happened and you get so used to doing... Yeah. Just um, doing everything on Zoom, but it is lovely to... It's much nicer, isn't it? When I edit books, I try to go to authors' houses. Was that what little Lenny wanted to do? <laughs> what, what, was, what did little Lenny want? I had no idea that there was a creative industry. I studied English at school. It was about the only thing I was good at. And I did English literature and film studies at university. I used to lie awake in bed at night thinking, what am I going to be? You know, because the environment I grew up in was a small town in Canada. sort of about the size of maybe Bristol or Brighton, something like that, but not funky like Brighton. <laughs> really small town. And everybody in my sort of area was either a professional, so doctor, lawyer, teacher, or... They worked in a shoe store, or we had a big factory in our town too, and so a lot of people worked there and for cars, car factory. And so I thought, oh, these are the opportunities. Either you go and work in a shop, or you're a teacher. I thought I could be a teacher. Yeah, yeah, same for me, yeah. But I had no concept that there was a, an industry. And then I worked in a bookshop, which is a really good thing, I think, to do if you're a publisher, actually, or a writer too. I went across Canada after university, and I worked in a bookshop called Boro Grove, and... Um, that's when reps came in from publishing houses and they were selling us the books and then they were also suggesting maybe an author could come in and sign and everything and I thought, oh, there's obviously there's a whole, <laughs> there's a whole industry, industry behind you it. Know, and it's so crazy. I studied English. I was selling books and it wasn't until a human being came in saying, do you want to buy that? I thought, oh my God, there's obviously a whole edifice here. So yeah, that Where do books come from? Yes, how stupid was I? So that's when I was in Canada and then when I was in my early 20s, I came to London what made you come to London? I mean, it has to be said, books made me come to London. Two books, actually. One is 84 Charing Cross Road by Helen Hamp. And I was working in a bookshop then, too, so I had that sort of romance about a bookshop. I loved her relationship with these um, older English men. She writes to them during the war, and she begins sending them parcels for you know tea and things like that, and she orders books from them. And it's very it's sweet. It was turned into a movie. And anyway, so I was very taken with that. And then there was a book by a Canadian woman who's not very well known named Margaret Lawrence. 
who wrote a book, many books actually in Canada, but um, one of her books was called The Diviners, and it was about a young girl, a young woman rather, who was making up her mind about what she would do with her life. And her decisions were very much connected to the men she was connected to. And so she had a sort of intellectual um, boyfriend, and then she had a sort of man of the earth. And she was back and forth, which one, which one. And I had a slightly similar situation um, then. And she then, in the book, Morag, her name is, she suddenly realized her decision doesn't have to be dependent on either of these guys. She drops them both and goes to London. And I yeah. thought, well, that's a good solution. Did you literally do that? Yeah. Drop them both and go to London? Yeah, I did, yeah. Oh, I love that. That's brilliant. Yeah, still friends with them both. Um, that's the power of books, though. Isn't, isn't it, it, though? Yeah, I mean, she really did give me the idea that I could do it because I I think even then so this is in the late seventies and I'd you know I think I would have called myself a feminist but I certainly had feminist understandings and if you'd said to me will you let your life be bossed around by a man I would have said absolutely not I I'd already made this trip to the west coast and was living there by myself because I wanted to see what it was like to live by yourself in a brand new environment and the answer to that is lonely (laughs) really hard which is why I read a lot of books but I realized when I read that book that I was still had that concept that it was who I would be married to or who I would attach myself to as a man would dictate what my life was like you know that I would be like the wife of a teacher or the well you know it was in such a period of times where if you were interested in art you'd think you might be the wife of an artist you know rather than the artist so anyway so that book was very informative for me that said actually you can have your own adventure but that was literally what made you decide to actually I'm going to try London mm. so even though you were lonely on the west coast mm. I know I would be lonely again lonely here I'll go there and be lonely yes I just, have all that hinterland to worry about that was a good experience to be lonely awful actually at the time but obviously also good because again it's you sort of well you know you live through that it wasn't that bad you know I wasn't um deprived I was just sad (laughs) a bit melancholy and also slightly scratching my head of oh how do you make friends you know how do you meet people all those you know which so that was a good lesson for when I came to London London was much easier though how do you meet people though I'm not sure I even know still it's funny because when it's organic you know and I'm the oldest of five so I have a huge family so as well as you know, my school friends and my, I had my brother's school friends and the neighbors and everything and relatives. And so you don't even think about how you make friends. It just happens, doesn't it? But when you go into a new environment, I had to sit there and kind of work backwards thinking, well, how did I make, how did I meet people? Oh yeah, through school. Well, that's not obviously going to work. So when I came to London, I went to the City Lit, for example, and joined mm-hmm. courses because I thought, well, you need to be in an environment with yeah. like people as well. You put yourself with you know. people who you might have something in common. Exactly. With. You know, I wasn't going to hang out in bars and things like that but um obviously that's another way to meet people but mm-hmm. that didn't especially appeal to me How so old were you then i was 24 brave 20. i think so brave it sounds so young to me now obviously i didn't think it was young when i was 24 but you know I, but that's a good thing about being 24 actually mm-hmm. is that you know you're not even conscious that it's brave when i look back on myself i think what the hell if somebody had said to me when i got on the airplane by myself you will now not live in canada again for i mean I'll never say never for you know, the rest of your career. I would have got off that plane so fast. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, my plan was to come to London for a year. Canadians could get a temporary work visa because unbeknownst to me, that was another thing I had to learn about myself. I was regarded by this country as colonial. So there was a form you filled in and it said, we understand that young people from the colonies will want to visit the mother country. (laughs) I know. So it's all such... Um, my eyes are popping out of my head. <laughs> I know. It's so funny. I'm, obviously, it won't say that now. Um, but I thought, even then, I thought, oh, my God, that's awful. But anyway, okay, that's fine. If that's the game I'm going to play, I'll, I'll be that. I'll be this young colonial. Yeah. So I got a temporary work visa. But my plan was to stay here for a year and do anything, try and find out about publishing, and then go back to Canada and get a proper job. So I knew I wanted to go into publishing, but not necessarily here. I just thought I would put my toe in the water here. We were talking about how brave that was. Are you more or less brave now, do you think? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, actually, because I think that kind of bravery, the bravery of the 24-year-old, my, well, anyway, my 24-year-old, me, is partly born from, well, it's obviously a search for adventure, isn't it? And it's also a sense of, you know, you don't have a sense of consequences. It's a great thing, I think, as a young person. You don't have so much imagination of how badly things could go or the consequences like you know obviously I leave my country I might not come back to my country but I didn't think that Mm -hmm. so is that bravery or is that just 
bravado. I don't know. Mm. I do think there's a fearlessness that comes from thinking it'll probably be fine. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Partly because I had experienced being lonely already on the west coast of Canada. So I wasn't so fearful. You know, I thought I could probably manage. And I think the idea of the adventure was bigger to me than the fear. So am I that brave now? I think probably I understand consequences too much now. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I'd like to think of myself as bold, but I've been in the same job forever, married to the same husband for a long time. So, you yeah. know, so I feel my life looks quite stable from the outside, but I don't feel myself to be timid. No, definitely not. I'm trying to remember who I was talking to. Somebody I have interviewed has said to me that they've been described as fearless and they don't think they're fearless. They know the fears and they have the fear, but they might do it anyway, but they know what they're doing. And I think that mm. that might, there might be in there somewhere a definition mm. of bravery. Yeah, I agree actually. understanding the risk yes when I edited Shirley Williams she who's Vera Britton's Mm. mother she called herself fearless and I said are you fearless are you brave you know because I think you're brave I think Shirley Williams was brave she was very incredible she was very unafraid of speaking out and she was a politician as a very young woman and she made a real distinction between fearless and bravery because she just said I just don't understand the consequences I don't think of the consequences you know so I'm not brave I'm just oblivious <laughs> you know kind of I thought I still call that brave myself actually because you know was she really oblivious well she was quite thick-skinned mm. she got it in the neck for a lot of things but it you know it didn't deter her so you know that's bravery I think yeah. that's bravery I mean she was an incredible person wasn't she and that's one of those people that kind of sad that you'll never have the chance to meet but you must have met so many women like that I did you know I wish I'd kept a diary when I was when I first came I into Virago too, too. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had I looked back onto catalogues and things like that. You know, I, I got prompts for, you know, and I had notes and things from people, but I didn't have the diaries. You know, I wish I could remember some of the, you know, things people said as opposed to kind of vaguely what they said, you know, or vaguely yeah. what they were like and stuff. But, um, yeah, I've been very blessed, I must say, you know, that I think of the kind of, vis-a-vis this conversation, the kind of older women who I worked with, Adrian Rich, I would say. You know, I was very young when I first met her and I was, I was very green, you know, I was doing publicity and I was helping getting her public um, interviews and um, platforms, speeches and things. And, you know, I, I'd read her, but I didn't really understand. I didn't know enough, actually. And she was just so kind. You know, she really, she is a teacher, was a teacher. There was never a sense of being put down, you know. You know, I definitely said some stupid stuff later on. I, and I read, felt back on them and I thought, oh, my God. But she never made me feel stupid, you know. There was a sort of sense that you need to learn. You know, you can't learn if you're scared, you know. So she was great. And then people like Margaret Atwood. And again, I was young when I met her too. Strong and potentially quite scary women. She has a reputation of being scary. You're completely right. And if you read any interviews with her, the journalist almost always says before, I approached her with trepidation. And, you know, why she's frightening to people is that she's, she's so smart. I mean, she probably is one of the most clever people I know actually I've ever come across because her her range you know she can talk about dinosaurs or climate change or great novels or bad novels (laughs) and poetry you know her range is quite phenomenal but I think the thing that she frightens people on is because partly that knowledge but actually she kind of expects you to be on your on your point as much as she is or don't come yeah yeah that's right and so she's one of the few authors I, for example, would, I would find out exactly how many copies we'd sold, where they'd been sold, you know, because that was mm. my side of the bargain, you know, the, of our relationship. I was the professional, you know, publisher. Mm. And so she would expect me, you know, if she said, well, how many did you print? She would expect me to have the answer. So once you know that about her, she's not frightening and she's very kind. She's very kind and very, very generous. Hugely supportive of other writers and Mm. young people too, definitely, and older people too. So she's good. But Maya Angelou had a version of that too. Maya used to have this, Maya Angelou used to have this thing saying, when I come, I bring my all. And then the dot, dot, dot there was... And I expect you to do the same, you know, and that's okay. I mean, you don't have to do this job. You know, some people are more demanding than others, definitely, but not everybody is. But I think it's, you take the measure of what they need from you and what they expect from you. And as I say, the professional relationship is that you're not just on their coattails. You know, your job is to make them a living as much as they can, to do the best by their book, 
you know, I take that responsibility really seriously. So I'm okay if people, you know, ask a lot back. Yeah. As long as they give as well. Yeah. You know, why should they write great books and expect it, the world just to happen? No, you don't. You have to publish well. That's an incredible... I mean, just those four women mm. that you've named there, off the top of your head, just, like, incredible people to have worked with. I know, I feel very lucky. But also my um, colleagues, too. There are a lot of really intelligent, passionate creative people you know I think that's probably what I discovered when I finally worked out there was a creative industry actually is just what a fascinating group of people inhabit it you know I mean probably like everywhere there's some silly people too but you know or people who just don't get it but on the whole people who are giving their lives to words to try and make beautiful sentences or powerful sentences good stories reach people you know they're 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 nice people to hang out with So tell me about how you started at Virago, how you found them, how they found you. I found them. So the first job when I came to London, I worked for a publicity company because it was just at the dawn of using authors to promote their books. So it was the beginning of the sort of, you know. So it's all your fault. (laughs) I know, I was going to say it's... That is a really mixed blessing, actually. I definitely, I do know that, actually. I mean, one of the first books I worked on was Colleen McCulloch's The Thornbirds. Huge book. Huge book. And, you know, but the sort of calling card to the media here was the advance she'd been paid. And the person she was, I mean, she'd been paid a huge advance in America. And it was quickly made into a film. So she came to London and the publicity we did was her. Basically, we took her up and down the country, went to all the um, radio stations and things as you did in those days. So the company I was working for was very aware, you know, the best way to get the message of the book across was to use the author. And, you know, as you say, that's a kind of legacy that, you know, but it was the same time that there were so many lifestyle things opening up in newspapers, too. You know, the the Guardian Women's page had been going before that. But, you know, there are other pages began opening like that. Exactly. Styles, stuff like that. You know, it wasn't all feminist by any means or even female. But, um, you know, there was a demand for lifestyle, lifestyle stuff, really, to be honest. So my company sort of slotted into that and thought, yeah, okay, we can give this. So so I worked for them for about a year. I mean, Colin McCulloch's book, notwithstanding, I wasn't very happy with the books we were doing. And also, we were handed the books um, because we were an outside publicity company. So yeah. I felt, whoa, I'd like to know, you know, further back, what's happening you know, More why involved in the whole yeah, process. Yeah, I just wanted not to be, you know, just the finished. It was like being a bookseller again, which I did like, but... You know, I wanted to be, yeah, right involved from the get-go. So I wrote to um, two companies. Also, it was 1977, 78, and um, for me, anyway, beginnings of real feminism. So Spare Rib came out in 1972, for example, and Equal Pay Act was 75. You know, so the sort of political ferment of this, especially of London, obviously, was huge. So uh, I wanted to get involved with politics. I wanted politics to be my life. Yeah, so I wrote to two companies, Writers and Readers, which is a publishing cooperative, and to Virago. And because I had only been here a year and I still retained a whole lot of Canadian chutzpah, I hadn't had it <laughs> knocked out of me, I wrote to them both and said, I think I can help you. Because I thought that's what you Good did. Good for you. <laughs> yes, yeah. I know, back to the kind of not understanding consequences or bravery, I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, that's the style. I thought, well, I've worked for a year here, I know stuff. So I wrote to both of them, and what I hadn't realized, because it was obviously way pre-Google and stuff, how did you find out stuff in those days? I hadn't realized Carmen Khalil, who'd started Virago, had run her own publicity company for 15 years. So she knew quite a lot more than me. So here I am saying, I can help you. (laughs) She did say to me, I want to hire you because you have clout. Obviously, I knew enough to look like I knew what I was talking about. You know, I hardly even knew the word clout. Because it's yeah. not a very Canadian word, and yeah. I remember having to look it up afterwards, and then thinking, "No, she's wrong. I don't." Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, I'm putting on a good front, as you say. She hired me for a day, a week, and writers and readers hired me for four days. So I split my next year between the two. So I went from one kind of publishing, not really corporate, but you know, pretty slick stuff, into this unbelievable mm. political kind of publishing. Really exciting, very tumultuous though it has to be said oh my god they run on emotion you know they run on passion and they they run on adrenaline they're great but they're very hard on the body they're hard on the relationships um they they give an awful lot 
as well. I mean, you know, I wouldn't change it for one second, actually. I'm really glad I had all of that. It's a good experience to have had, but it's very like startup culture now. It kind of just comes from that. It's immensely draining. I think it's the toughest thing that anyone will ever do. I think that's right. But also, it's the best thing you'll ever do. Mm. You know, the flip side is exactly that, isn't it? It's just yeah. just exactly like the worst thing, the best thing. It's exactly the same thing. And so it was the best thing. And also, it just teach you a lot. I mean, with Writers and Readers, it was a cooperative. It had a hierarchy. Of course it does. But it was a sort of hidden hierarchy. You know, I began to learn how companies make things and how power balances come within companies. So, as I say, that had a hidden hierarchy. And in fact, I read an article right around that time called The Tyranny of Structurelessness, and mm. which was so good and also so good about feminism feminism at that period too of course because everybody was trying to flatten you know the hierarchies correctly obviously I still subscribe to that but on the other hand if you just pretend you don't have a hierarchy or you pretend some people have more skills than other or more dominant personalities you know that actually then that's when you get really whoa what's going on here why are decisions being made and I thought I was supposed to be involved in, you know all yeah. that kind of stuff yeah the hairs on the back of my neck have gone up <laughs> and you know it was also the time you'll remember this I mean I know you're younger but even still, you'll know the whole idea of the sort of tall poppy and the queen bee, you know. So, mm-hmm. you know, what was happening, of course, partly because of these lifestyle magazines and things like that and Guardian Women and feminism, you know, the papers wanted to talk to feminists. So f- some feminists become very famous, of course. But mm-hmm. that was kind of very contrary to the ethos, allowed, which is you're not yeah. supposed to be famous. You're not supposed to be, you're supposed to be part of the sisterhood and the sisterhood is flatlined, <laughs> you know. So working for those two companies, because then Virago was a hierarchy. Um, It wasn't a cooperative, was it? It was not a cooperative, but it understood... This, this is where I mean about understanding skills. It understood that people had skills and that actually to run a company, it first of all, it had a different goal. And the goal was to bring feminism to the masses, for sure. But it was also to make enough money so you could do that. Mm. Whereas the Writers and Readers Cooperative didn't have the commercial side of it, too. So it didn't last. But, I mean, a lot of things of that period didn't last. I mean, there's hardly any of the radical Mm. presses of the 70s that are around now. But Virago always had the two goals, as I say. One, the goal was, we'll tell stories that have been on the margins and bring them to the centre. We'll make them centre. We'll say, you know, it's wrong to think of women's lives and women's stories and women's experiences and women's writing as marginal. As a genre. Yeah, a niche. I mean, we were always called, like, niche publishers, and we'd go, I'm sorry, we represent more than half the population. It's not niche. You know, come on over and see. You know, we want to be mainstream. That wasn't always popular in all the feminist um, feminism of the time, either mainstream was thought to be sold out. I think that's, but I think that that's still the case if women and men are running a business and I'm sure that there are some people listening who will go, you're actually talking about the pool and I think to a certain extent I am. The expectations are different. You're not allowed to want to make a successful business. If you're a woman, you have to be doing it for altruistic reasons. Interesting, almost, yeah. And you can be doing it for both. Virago, Carmen, had the goal which was to make a profitable business. So it was a game which flew very much in the face. I mean, one of the last things she said before she died, she gave a speech and she said, I can't tell you how, I'm not quoting her exactly, but how unpopular it was to be, again, it's the Queen Bee, how unpopular it was to sort of set your goal is that you're going to show the world that women running a company can make a business of it, can make a go of it, you know, that women's literature could be validated commercially. You know, not everybody had that goal in feminism at all, actually. And it's still a very left-wing thing, isn't it? that profit and cash and commerce and everything, they dirty the waters. I mean, of course they dirty the waters. First of all, there's no such thing as clean money, is there, really? No. Um, but also, by thinking that you're going to live just, you know, on your adrenaline, on your spirits, on your altruism, then why aren't people getting paid properly? You know, authors should be paid properly, no. staff should be paid properly, and they mm-hmm. can only be paid properly if you make a profit. And the other thing is, if you don't make a profit, first of all, you've let down everybody, you know, mm-hmm. all your authors, they have to go find somebody else. I mean, when Virago did have problems, you know, some of the, the articles would say feminism is dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, you're Just Virago, about exactly. the whole thing. That's right. Rather. So, you know, you're carrying that kind of thing. But that the happens weight on to it. women as well, doesn't mm. it? It's like, if a man fails, he fails, move on. If a woman fails, all women have I know. failed. That's right. There, it was a very... It's, we still have that, I think, actually. Mm. 
But um, that was definitely true with, with Virago. Virago has been seen as a sort of lightning rod and, or lodestar, whatever, you know, and obviously that's fabulous. But as soon as you falter, then it's, you know, catfighting, women scratching each other's eyes out. You know, it's not a boardroom. The cat fight. That's right. Oh, and it's, yeah. it's very pure and it gets quite sexual somehow, doesn't it? Instead of a boardroom bust-up, which is a normal thing, frankly. But uh, yeah. What do you think you learned most from Carmen? I would say to keep a big goal, you know, to keep the goal high, standards high, definitely. She had very, very high standards. She was very exacting, which, of course, is exhausting if you don't get it right. But, you know, devil is in the details. She would be that kind of person. You know, she was very careful, very organized. So I think I got all of that from her. Definitely. Also, you know, it's funny because a, a lot of Carmen's um, legacies, especially for people who worked with her, they remember how hard she was. She also had an amazing knowledge and love of literature and a real joie de vivre. And I would say those things really came through too. I wanted to do well. I didn't mind the exacting quality. You know, I did find it shocking to begin with, really shocking. You know, it kept me awake at night, and I wasn't used to that level of um, demand, I suppose. But once I understood it, and once I... I think I've got it now, too, and probably drive other people mad myself, so there you go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of, But so. I, I think things should be done well. And I think, you know, again, see, the one of the interesting things Carmen used to always say, aside from the need to make a profit and bring feminism to the mainstream, was that she said, we are in the service of the authors. You know, which is so interesting. I don't think publishers think like that at all now, actually. You know, I think... There's a sort of... No, I definitely think there's a sense that you're bloody lucky to be published by us. And it's not right, actually. You know, that book rests on the shoulders of that one person. And, you know, Carmen was very, very clear about that, that, you know, that was the gift you gave us. I mean, obviously we paid for it and all that kind Mm. of stuff. But, you know, that our responsibility was, you know, to take care of your, your work. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So tell me about how you came to run Carmen's business. Yeah, to run funny. Virago. How did you come to be in her chair? Well, it was over a long period of time. Mm. She left in the early 80s, but she stayed our chair. And I was doing publicity and marketing for quite a long time, which I think is very important, actually. You know, I feel like, you know, I've done book selling, marketing, production is what I did it when I was at Writers and Readers. I think I've done all the jobs in publishing, and I think it's good, it's good to have a broad range of things, definitely, to understand how the whole thing puts together, is put together. So anyway, after she left, I was doing marketing and publicity still, and then we did a management. We did a lot of stuff at Virago. We've had seven different owners. And eventually... Yeah, and we're still here. And um, in the early 90s, I became publisher. And I leapt from doing publicity. Um, Harriet Spicer was the managing director then, and she said, do you want to become the publisher? And I, oh my God, do I? Yes. And so I hadn't really got editorial background. You know, I hadn't come up the way of, you know, crawling over manuscripts and doing copy editing 
even now my grammar I would say is not my greatest strength I love you for that <laughs> you know good but I totally rely on a copy editor coming afterwards for me you know to be able to make sure everything does hang together properly but I think I had been well obviously I was a big reader I think I was a critical reader and so I think I was able to make that leap to editing what I can do what I could do even probably pretty early on but certainly now is structural editing you know why is you know do we understand this book has it got a foundation do we and mm. you know do we need these characters you know those kinds of things I learned on the job but I think I also knew from doing my marketing and publicity how you publish a book you know what kind of jacket you put on it what kind of title Mm. you put on it and then the other thing I think I learned is because I had been on the road so much you know with the amazing women writers like Maya Angelou Margaret Atwood Adrian Rich when you do publicity you're very much up against that moment when the book hits the audience the readers so I'd seen thousands of events listened to conversations Mm. so I feel like I really I could understand a lot about where a writer's coming from from doing that I think and so one of the things I feel very strongly about and I had that from the beginning is trusting the writer your job as the editor is not to write the book your job as the editor is to pull the best book out of the person and to do that you have to first work out what they're trying to do I mean I know it sounds bleeding obvious but actually it's not (laughs) it's not obvious and sometimes I've often said to an author when I read their first manuscript well tell me what you think this book's about what they say and what's on the page is not the same thing Mm. you know so guilty probably guilty as charged (laughs) (laughs) well it's easy to do because so much of it's in your head isn't it you forget Mm. what wasn't on the page but also how you're presenting it and things too so I think my way of going about is trusting the author first. I mean, obviously, I'm getting an author who I can trust to start off with. I'm not taking on somebody who doesn't know how to write. But I might take on somebody you know who's got an idea but hasn't quite formed it yet. So part of the conversation for nonfiction would be like, well, what is this idea? Let's really you know keep pushing till we actually know what the idea is. Is that your main strength, do you think? Do you think that that's the thing that you're really good at? I don't run Virago now. Now I'm chair and I work part-time and I, you know, work with my authors. I think it's valuing the author's creativity, integrity, trying to get the best out of out of that. Would that be a strength? I guess it's a strength. I think I'm a good reader. I will read some novels that I'm editing five times, easily. So I have great endurance. <laughs> I have real really? stamina. Actually, yeah. some of my authors say, oh my God, stop it. You know, please, can I just, you know, stop? And I say, well, we'll just do a little bit more. Just one more. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I don't give up. I suppose that's the other thing. You know, I think it's back to, you know, high standards. I want that book to be the best it can possibly be. I would say those are my strengths, yes. Did you want to change the world? You use the phrase change the world and you talk about it in your book, Bite of the Apple. Was that something that you you were like, this is you set out to do? I possibly wouldn't have been able to say that at 24, no. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. Whereas Carmen... And some feminists of of that period, and even now today, would be at that age, yes, they would definitely say, I'm here to change the world. I don't think I had that confidence. I don't think I had the... um, I don't think I knew enough, actually. But falling in with both writers and readers and Virago, yes, I would definitely say then I could see you can change the world. And also the world needs changing, you know. The confluence, I suppose, of the feminism rising at at that stage... The way I was living, I was living in a communal house. So again, you know, the ideas of collective households, how you live, how you arrange your life. And then Virago and Writers and Readers, it was all pointing, and feminism was all pointing to change. Yeah, the world could be changed. And also, the thing that I do realise, even though I do think the world has changed a lot, it hasn't changed as much as we thought back then. But also, I think we thought we could change it faster. I, I really do think we thought, you just needed to show people... <laughs> you know mm. what was wrong with it and it would change and they'd see you were right yes and, it's yeah. right and you know it's so not true and it slides oh my god you know feminism so you have to hold the uh, faith keep the faith definitely and i do but you know you do also despair about yeah, well, the backslidings isn't it i think it? that's the thing isn't it you think when you were young or certainly i thought that it would be like an uphill trajectory yes, be linear and the backsliding so i mean i was editing magazines at the time of ladettes and the lads mags oh god yeah. was literally i know bad word world. 
dirty word. I remember doing a survey on Cosmo where it was very short, literally asked five questions of the readers and they were things like, do you think women should earn the same as men? You know, blah, blah, blah. And then the last question is, are you a feminist? And all of the answers to the first four questions were like between 97 and 99.9%. Yes. Are you a feminist? 63 or something. And I really struggled with that, but you being in Virago at that point, that must have been really difficult to see. It was very hard. The 90s were hard from that point of view. You know, that's a bit casual, isn't it? A whole decade, but you know, that that period of the ladettes, as you say, and the kind of, and also the rise of the lad magazines, you know, horrible actually. And the idea that you're absolutely right, you know, it would be, I'm not a feminist, but I think women should have, you know, should not be fearful of violence, they should have education. Um, equal education and they should be paid equal wages for equal jobs but I'm not a feminist (laughs) you know and even now I think you know there's still this sort of sense isn't there that feminism means anti-men I mean it's a very interesting thing and I'm doing a lot of promotion of older women people rather at work right now I've started with some other people something called age-wise but I'm just going to give it as an example of this the same sort of thing is that there's always a sense that if you promote one thing you're obviously doing down the other thing zero sum game yeah yeah so you promote the idea that an older workforce is good for in publishing I'll just talk about publishing it's good for the readers because it reflects the readers Mm. so you promote that idea but it can very quickly become oh right you think you're more important than young people and you've had a good life all your life you know and the same thing around feminism isn't it I mean I've always thought with feminism that it would change the world it is the most important revolution that's ever happened in any time in my view maybe you could say the industrial revolution but you know I do think it has changed the world undoubtedly but I always thought it would change everyone you know that it was going to be good for men and women of course it is because what feminism right from the beginning said is we've got to get people out of these boxes you know men behave this way women behave this way you know we're all going to be liberated you know it was actually Eva Feiges who said it in the 60s I think she did a book called Patriarchal Attitudes and she said men don't really understand patriarchy but it's really terrible for them as well as for women you know that's Mm. back in the 60s and that's what I I believe that actually I think patriarchy poisons all of us actually but there still is an idea as they say that if you're trying to lift the game for women if you're lifting the game for one then you're obviously depressing the other you know what I mean and you're I mean that's what's depressing and so in the 90s that definitely was that wasn't it young women didn't say they were feminists either or maybe they thought being a ladette was a feminist I don't know quite how that went but um you know I remember it was 2010 actually and we published Natasha Walter's book Living Dolls Return of Sexism yes and I remember I took her manuscript to the acquisition meeting and we'd published Natasha before and we were loyal Mm. to our authors and so there was definitely a feeling that we would publish Natasha Walter's next book but nobody was buying polemic but everybody said, well, of course you must publish her. So I got, I managed to sort of squeeze out a smallish advance. And we thought, well, we'll, we'll just go out into the world and try this out. But it, we published it exactly it the moment. It was huge, wasn't it? Yeah, it was huge. And, well, there was Catlin Moran's book. And then there were a few other books around that time. And young women especially said, yes, you know, the invisible mm-hmm. enemy here is sexism. And it's still here. We Maybe people are cleverer about language now. And it's not so, you know, it wasn't putting women quite in the same obvious boxes, but um, it was still there. And yeah, that was just on the cusp. So I've seen, you know, these waves of feminism come and go. And what you have to do with a place like Virago and still being here, it's just, as I say, keep the faith. We're not there yet. So, you know, we, there's no time to retire. Yes, it'll come. Feminism, what I have seen is feminism will come in and out of fashion horribly. You know, it'll have a flavor. I mean, I suppose it doesn't doesn't start as a fashion. It starts as a grief or as a, a realization or an enjoyment and, you know, empowerment or a, a celebration of women. So it'll start there in a smallish area. I've seen Black Lives Matter would be another version of this too. It starts mm-hmm. as a small sort of rebellious group and then it grows to become more mainstream and become, you know, part of most people's idea of justice. And then it becomes a fashion. <laughs> And then it gets t-shirts and then it goes out of fashion because it's become a fashion, you know. And then, and also then people think, oh, we solved that because, you know, obviously people are wearing t-shirts saying this is what a feminist looks like. So it ebbs again. And I, you know, I wish we wouldn't call feminism or black liberation too, minority ethnic, etc., liberation waves because it almost implies that we know that they're going to go, you know. Yeah, it's going to. In and out. Come in, crash. 
yeah be gone yeah and it does feel like in society in general actually there's a lot of box ticking mm, that's right there's a lot of oh yeah well we've done that we've ticked that i box. know um we've done ageism oh class this year yeah you know and yes that applies to publishing but also applies to yeah yeah diversity departments in but i don't despair you know because i think you move forward in each of those things so yes i quite agree with you you know things like unconscious bias and stuff everybody you know jumped on that and we all thought that was going to really be a good thing and obviously it hasn't been the gift to everybody it hasn't changed the world enough but it's changed the world a little bit you know and the sort of the idea that for example girls should be educated women should be paid the same as men that black and asian and transgender people should not be mistreated you know that enters the world Mm. I do think when I first came into sort of consciousness actually women were really regarded as second-class citizens Mm. you know well like you said when you're talking about your 20s yes something self you still thought your life was going to be massively influenced by who yeah I would be which of those two men exactly I'd be attached to somebody and that would define me that's exactly Mm -hmm. right and I do think that has changed I guess you know just what one feels frustrated by is that things don't move along fast as you want but they do change society does definitely change even with these ebbs and flows when the tide goes back there's still quite a lot there and that's true it doesn't all get washed away it doesn't and it'll get picked up by the next generation so I just to be honest one of the things I feel really despairing about is how indignant people are and how people want to fight and you know and all on the same side as well I mean we're fighting the wrong things we're fighting we should be fighting fighting each other we should be fighting racism and patriarchy instead you know we're policing each other I don't like that But I just also, I don't want to spend energy on feeling indignant, indignant and fighting. I think that is too draining. Well, that is the point, isn't it? The point is to drain your energy so you don't have the energy to worry about the things that you should be worrying about. Yeah, but that would be as if somebody up there on the right or whatever had the big plan. I don't know. I think the left is quite capable of sabotaging itself, you know. Um, but it does come from a feeling of not being powerful, of course. You know, it's it's a powerlessness. So when you're, you know, feel that you don't have the power you want, then you look around your own, you know, nest basically, mm-hmm. and try and make people behave like the way you want them to behave. But that's first of all, it's a waste of time. But secondly, it's missing the point. You know, it's the the vulture out there we need not you yeah. know to take care of, not our little nest. You know. You touched just now on your ageism mm. work at work. I mean, you're in your 60s now with a massive career behind you, but not finished. Have you felt that much vaunted invisibility that many women in their 50s and 60s talk about? I'm actually 70 now. Are you? Mm-hmm. Recently? Just. Yes. Happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> what I noticed at work when I was in my early 60s is that people were coming to me, men and women, because even then I was one of the few older people. And people, when they turned 50, it's so arbitrary isn't it these decades but anyway 50 you hit 50 and you look around and you think wait a minute how much longer have I got and where are the people who are like B you know there are more younger people than me than older and yes I think there was a sort of sense that the expectation is you won't stay the expectation is that you'll soon peter out into the uh, into the sunset but the thing is the mandatory employment Act law just changed in 2011. So up till 2011, you did peter out at 65 yeah, or 60. You, six, had, to, you yeah. had to leave, didn't you? So it's recent. That's only 2011. So when we started talking at work about you know what happens beyond 65, yet again, it's like being early feminist. You know, yet again. In fact, I liken it to that because I want people to see it as a sort of sociological thing rather than don't forget me, you know, and I'm great and I know stuff. I want them to see the world has shifted. So the the last time that the sort of work world shifted so hugely was in the 70s when more than 50% of women entered the workforce and changed the workforce, obviously, dramatically, didn't it? And we're at another shift right now, actually, since 2011. So if you want to go on working after 65, you can. So what we were trying to bring is consciousness to the company, saying, well, what's your plan? And are you still training people? We'd say to, to the bosses, how many people have you trained who are over 45? And of course, we'd be zero almost. Well, the idea of promoting someone of that age. I know. So, you know, I think it's shifting. I mean, what I would say at our places, I think what we've done, not just 
obviously age-wise, but also, you know, society, yeah. is that I think we've made it ordinary to work till you're 60. I think there is now a sort of consciousness that, that 60 doesn't mean you're just teetering on the edge. I think 60 to 70, we have not conquered that yet. <laughs> I yeah. still think there is where you get your ageism. I mean, even women over 50, anybody over 50 leaving the workforce and trying to get back in finds it difficult because there is yeah. an ageism and there's an expectation that, you know, in the 70s, when you were applying for a job as a woman, you could still be asked, are you married? And are you planning to have children? Yeah, you could still be asked that well at the end of the 80s. When you hear that, you realise that wasn't that long ago. We have changed. <laughs> you know, yeah, The world has yeah. changed. So you wouldn't dare ask a woman that now. Um, you would hope. You would hope yeah. that's right. I mean, you may think it. But, you know, but I think that's the kind of work one's got to do still around ageism, actually, is that there's an expectation that you're off. Yeah. You're losing your relevance as well. That's right. So, but it's it's a balancing. That's what I'm trying to say too, is that, you know, I'm not saying that older people should be there instead of younger people. What I'm saying in the publishing industry is we need to represent our readers, yeah. you know, which is what, what we're saying about equality, diversity. You know, we're saying we need a different color workforce because that's who our readerships are. And so I'm just extending that, saying that age should be part of diversity. Part of that conversation. Mm. Before I ask you the questions I always ask at the end, just in terms of Virago, how does it feel to have been and still be part of something so significant in my view so significant yeah I know I'm so lucky in fact I was having a conversation yesterday about luck and we're saying god it's such a female thing to say you know it was luck but I do think you make your luck Mm -hmm. of course you do but Luck also plays. You you can't, you know. I have definitely been in the right place at the right time. And some of the times I've been the right person at the right place at the right time. And I've worked hard. So, you know, I'm not going to say, you know, luck just landed in my lap at all, actually. But I was very lucky, you know, to hit Virago just at the time I did, actually. It was, a, it was still early. We were still counting the stamps, for God's sake. It was an exciting time for feminism, also very a precarious time for our company. You know, I've lived through that entire time. I do have the great luck, I will say luck here, of working for a company where you meet people. They say things like, Virago changed my life. Mm, absolutely. I would you know. absolutely say that. I mean, when I walked through the door <laughs> and I saw the the whole wall of Virago dark green spines. Mm. I mean, I don't know whether I audibly squealed. I you did, yeah. Inter- I did audibly squeal. I mean, I certainly internally squealed because mm. that's how important it is. Yeah. You know, I can use all the words, which I will. It's a great privilege to work for something that means so much to so many people. I didn't know I was brave. I didn't know I um, wanted to change the world when I was young, but I did know that I wanted to be involved with something with meaning. You know, I definitely always knew. I have an engineer father and my mother's a nurse. And I think they both, you know, it's a contributing... I can go back to the the kind of jobs they did. You know, they changed the world. They changed people's lives with their work. And I think that legacy is in me too, that, you know, you should contribute. So, yeah, I very much want to do that. And I'm glad it's worked out. (laughs) Right. Questions I always ask at the end. What is your emotional age? I was just reading an interview with... With Joyce Carol Oates and Margaret Atwood. And Joyce Carol Oates was bemoaning getting older. And Margaret Atwood had this lovely line which she said, I don't think of it as age, I think of it as a different stage. Mm. <laughs> and I thought, well, I really like that a lot, actually. And I slightly feel the same. I mean, I think it's very difficult to, you know, say how old you actually feel. If you pin me down, I would probably say in my 40s or something like that, because I feel, I feel quite energetic, but I also don't feel in that kind of terrible you know disorientation you also feel in your 20s you know without you know that you don't know quite where your feet are standing on which ground etc so yeah I would have the stability and energy of the 40s I guess I mean this feels like a particularly mean question to ask you given your career but is it possible for you to give us a book recommendation it could be something very recent or it could be something that's been significant to you at some point in your life I'm going to go to Hilary Mantel's um, memorial. And so I've been thinking a lot about her. And um, our Sarah Waters, who I, who I published, in fact, is reading at the um, ceremony, which is Can very... just tell her to get on with the next book, please? <laughs> <laughs> she is getting on with the next book. Anyway, so I feel very connected to um, Hilary Mantel. And Hilary Mantel has done a lot of introductions to us at Virago. She is mm. a very... I want to talk about her in the present tense. Mm. She was a very generous person. 
a bit like Margaret Atwood in that sense of really being aware of other authors, being prepared to read their books, bring them along. So I would say the book I would like to recommend is her memoir, Giving Up the Ghost, because, I mean, it's a devastating story, actually, about her not being diagnosed properly and being ignored because she was female and she kept bringing these symptoms to doctors and they kept, you know, basically telling her she was hysterical. Or But she got through that and she became the great person she was. The other thing I love about that book is that she obviously believes in ghosts mm, and yeah, it starts with her sort of under you know feeling that there's another presence I like that idea very much actually as um just yeah I feel like what the life we see isn't the whole picture by any means and I also think in some way she's talking about the subconscious too in which the subconscious which of course produces the book so that yeah. one b- works for me on many fronts what advice would you give younger women I would say take yourself seriously Take yourself seriously. You know, don't sell yourself short. Think about who you are and, yeah, take yourself seriously. I don't mean don't have fun, but yeah, know who you are. Good. It's because I see that young men take themselves seriously. And I see that very much in work. And I'm in an industry where it's mostly women. You know, we're like 70% female. And yet so many of the publishing houses are run by men. And so, you know, that doesn't even make sense, right? You know, represent who's who's actually working in publishing. And so I think... Good on them, men. I'm, that's not me putting men down. Good on them. They take themselves seriously. They, you know, set their cap and they think, I can do that. And that's what I want women to, to have that same feeling too. We've probably covered this one a bit already, but who is an older woman who has inspired you or does inspire you? I'm extremely lucky by the number of older yeah. women that I, who have inspired me. But I think I've been thinking a lot about Carmen Khalil, who died last autumn, in fact, I just went to her house and a green plaque was unveiled, um, put on her house, you know, founder of Raga. And um, you have to be dead for 20 years to get a blue plaque because they oh, have I to. I didn't know that. Yes, that's, that's right. Um, but one of her executors, Frances Stoner Saunders, decided I will just do it now. So she's put up a green plaque on the uh, house and I've just been to see that. So I would say, yes, especially in the context of this conversation, which is about books and about taking yourself seriously, about trying to change the world, about not being afraid, not being afraid to speak out. I would say Carmen Khalil. What's your superpower? I find this question really hard. <laughs> I think I'm hoping that my superpower is listening. I hope I'm a good listener. I think that's key. Well, obviously it's key in terms of being a good person in the world, frankly, but Mm. also I think it's key to being a mother, and I'm the mother of two kids, and I think it's key to being an editor. So I don't really know, but I would aspire to have that. (laughs) Yes, brilliant. Um, And last one, and I feel slightly rude asking you this, which is terrible. Um, How many facts do you give? Yeah, I don't even know how to answer that question. I I think I do care a lot. I don't think I am a a person who says I don't care what people think or or whatever. I hope I care less about what people think than I used to. Um, But yeah, I think I'm kind of quite alive to seeing how the world works and being in the world. And so I don't think I'm casual about that. So probably not very many. (laughs) Thank you. It's been such a privilege to talk to you. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras and more. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com